I'm Dave Bostrom. Some of you, uh, I mean, many of you I know um, and have met. Some of you might be our guests and visitors with us uh, today. And I just want to spend uh, or extend a very special welcome to you and thank you for joining us this morning. This morning, I'm going to be finishing up a series uh, that I started back in December. Uh, it's only four parts long, so you can do the math how many times I've been up here. But it's called Jesus the Road Less Traveled. And the series has uh, focused really on a couple things. Um, it, it, it's one of those where we, we focus in on if the disciples were traveling with Jesus, what would be the things that they would have observed and the things that they would have learned? Um, two, we also see that uh, the road in which Jesus takes and what he calls the disciples to do is really not the easy road. Uh, the disciples got to see firsthand Jesus' um, humble servant uh, heart and attitude. Um, he saw, you get, uh, we, we get to see how deeply he loved people. No matter where he was, he always took time for people. Last week I talked about this idea of the cost of discipleship. And as I said earlier, it's not the easy road to be a disciple of Christ. But we can be comforted by knowing that being a disciple um, gives us, you know, that, that he's along with us on this journey. That we're not alone. He'll never leave us or forsake us. See, Jesus was regularly reminding his disciples and those that he would come in contact with about the kingdom of heaven. We would hear that over and over. He continued to remind them about what was to come in the future. He knew that when, when we know the ending, it gives us confidence to live, I think, with the right mindset and, and even purpose in life. So a number of years back, I was just kind of thinking, how can I illustrate it? So a number of years back, I took some youth to a, a conference in the Twin Cities, and we got done, we went back to the hotel, and we talked a little bit about what the speaker had said and had a good discussion. And, and when we were done, we turned on the TV and started watching the Gopher hockey game. And it was the third period, and they were down three to one. So I left the room to call my wife and just check in with her. She asked me how things were going and, and what we were doing. I told her we had a great night at the conference, good discussion in the rooms. And then I said, well, we're just hanging out in one of the other rooms and, and uh, we're just watching the uh, end of the gopher hockey game. And she was confused. And she said, well, that game's already over. The gophers won four to three. <laughs> but then I had an idea. I asked if she remembered when they scored, so she kind of reminded me about when that took place, and I returned to the room and noticed that the game was still on, and the station didn't put up in the corner replay. So I decided to make a bet with one of the kids. You buy me a case of Mountain Dew if the Gophers win, and if they, and, uh, and if they lose, I'll buy you dinner at any place of your choice. He quickly accepted, of course. This looked like a sure thing to him. There's less than uh, eight, six minutes to go, and, and all of a sudden, the Gophers score. It's three to two. Two minutes left in the game. They score again. It's tied. Then he has to tell me, hey, listen, a tie doesn't mean we have to fulfill anything, right? And I was like, yeah, that's totally fine. Only if the Gophers win or if they lose, all right? Just as time's running out, the Gophers score, and the room erupts. The student couldn't believe it. He thought it was such a sure thing. I let it soak in a bit and I told him no rush on the Mountain Dew. 
Okay, so the next morning I did tell him what happened, and uh, I didn't make him hold me to the Mountain Dew. But see, I tell you the story to kind of remind you that when we know the ending, it allows us to plan accordingly, right? And even walk more confidently in all the things we do. See, God wins, and we see that through his plan to send Jesus to redeem us. The victory is won because it's through Jesus himself. John 3, 16 through 18 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we see the pathway there. I don't know about you, but I've been lost many times, and on occasion I'll ask for directions. But have you ever been lost and in a strange place? You feel uncomfortable, um, or you've walked into a room and you know nobody. You don't, you don't know what, what, anything. Well, today we have a lot of resources that I think can kind of help us. You know, we've got maps, we've got technology that will uh, lead us to a lot of things to help us so that if we're lost or in a different culture, it might help us communicate. But I think when we walk into those situations, we, we do find it hard to truly communicate with people or even it takes a lot longer to establish relationships, right, with people. We begin to feel, I think, even a little bit more unsure of ourselves until we've been there for a while. However, once, we've, once we have someone that can translate for us, we can learn the language we begin, I think, to feel a little bit more at home. So uh, Jordan, our student ministries director, and myself, we thought, you know, I did a safety airline video. There wasn't anything real funny about it last week. But we took that same thing, and, and we just had a little, uh, little fun with Google Translator. Hello everyone, I'm Dave Bostrom. And I'm Jordan Erickson. And today, we're going to show you the confusion that can occur when translating words from English to a foreign language. And we think we have found the perfect thing to translate. Airline safety instructions. I'll be reading the original instructions with no translation at all. And I'll be reading the instructions after several language translations. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the crew, I ask. From immigrants to women, immigrants, vote for me for your advice. That you please direct your attention to the monitors above as we review the emergency procedures. I say watch out for the emergency process. There are six emergency exits on this aircraft. There are six answers to this mortgage. Take a minute to locate the exit closest to you. Note that the nearest exit may be behind you. Count the number of rows to this exit. Here is a few minutes to find the terrain version in the area. Make sure the latest version is below you. In this version, make sure you do some numbers. Should the cabin experience sudden pressure loss, stay calm and listen for instructions from the cabin crew. In case of vaccine recuperation, Silence and listening to advisor is the best advice. The action on your site was created. Seriously? How did they get that out of that? Hey, I'm not the one who makes the rules. Oxygen masks will drop down from above your seat. 
Place the mask over your mouth and nose, like this. Pull the strap to tighten it. Write down your hair in your mouth and another. Search for sale. If you are traveling with children, make sure that your own mask is on first before helping your child. When you search for your children, you know that your eyes help the child first. <laughs> Come on now, nobody's gonna understand that. Of course kids and parents will know what that means. When my students know when I make a face, I mean business. In the unlikely event of an emergency landing in evacuation, leave your carry-on items behind. Then they were paid later in various minor currencies. Life rafts are located below your seats and emergency lighting will lead you to your closest exit and slide. We ask that you make sure that all carry-on luggage is stowed away safely during the flight. Film rooms have movies in your area, in your course. While we wait for takeoff, please take a moment to review the safety data card in the seat pocket in front of you. We need to protect you from the time you go into the office. Take a look at the security card that protects your card and we will get you out. All right, I think you get the point that language can be an interesting thing and it's one of the things that can make us uncomfortable. But in this passage we're gonna be looking at this morning, um, we are really as Christians explained in a certain way. I remember um, traveling um, out of the country, and uh, I was going to Amsterdam or going to Ukraine via Amsterdam, and, and we took time. And boy, I'll tell you, I think I wish I would have had Google Translator um, because we use a lot of a lot of pictures and a lot of gestures and pointing um, to try to communicate. But I wonder if even today's resources would have really helped me all that much. Uh, this morning, as we open up God's Word, we're gonna we're gonna look at this idea that we're aliens. Okay, not from outer space type aliens. Um, strangers, sojourners, exiles, those are all kind of similar words that are used in a world that's not our home. So if you would, open up to 1 Peter 2, verse 11, and we're going to follow in a variety of verses, or that passage through. In this passage, the Apostle Peter reminds us of a very important truth. This is not our home. We are travelers, essentially, just passing through. This is not our permanent address, no matter how long we're in one place. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and as exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so I was looking at some of the other translations and kind of how they put it, and I really liked how the Message Bible translated those very same words. It says, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary, love that word, life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. See, Peter later even states in 2 Peter 3.13, he says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
And I want to show you a few passages where we have the Apostle Paul, we have Jesus, we have others that are they're talking about this other place, the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 describes it this way, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an internal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And he continues later in, verse, or in that chapter in verse 6, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And he finishes with this, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body, so we're here, or we're away from it with him. Our goal is to bring him glory. The Apostle Paul, even in Philippians 3.20, he says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how Peter puts it, how Paul puts it. But John records Jesus' words this way as he's speaking to the disciples. Do not let, in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So Jesus continues to remind his disciples over and over that the best is yet to come. We're to focus on the kingdom. He is explaining to them that this world, no matter how hard things get, no how, how fast things change, that he's coming back for us and that our home is not here. And then even just a few chapters later in John, we see Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate questions him, and Jesus says this to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. And then listen to this, But now my kingdom is from another place. So we can see we're not of this world when we're in Christ. So why does God have us in this world after all then? Why does he want us to think of ourselves as travelers, as sojourners, as foreigners, as exiles? There's a few reasons, and I can't really get into depth with them, but these are just three things that kind of made me kind of think about why we would be here. And he says, when we are most uncomfortable, we are most dependent on him. So if you think about that for a second, you go out into on a missions trip, chances are you become far more dependent on God because you're seeking what he needs and you're in something that's uncomfortable. When we go into uncomfortable situations, the unknown, it's like, okay, Lord, I can't rest on any of my own stuff. I've got to trust you. Another one is this, we can't use, we can't use our status to gain favor. We're in a different culture. We're not anything special to the culture. We're not famous. Or three, which I think is even the most important one, is he desires for us to spread his good news. And this is one of the ways in which we can do that. So according to 1 Peter, which I read, 1 Peter 2, read verses 11 and 12, and I want to 
I want to read them again because I think, again, it's given our mission. It gives us, gives us a purpose for why we're here. And again, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There is a lot in this, and we're going to unpack it a little bit. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let's walk through these verses. It's important to look at the verses just prior to this section because just a couple verses back of that, it says as Peter describes, he, he describes us as believers, these things, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I mean, listen to those things. I mean, those are pretty amazing things. We're chosen people. We're the royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, it really helps me remember how deeply loved we are by the creator of all things. And he's the one that is leading and guiding us along the journey, along the road in this unknown country of ours. But it's also important to realize that our identity is also then found in him, not found in this world. As Peter begins this section, we see probably two very important things that he just kind of begins with that sometimes we just read past. Peter uses the, the term dear friends, or other translations will use beloved. As Peter shares, you can read that he has a great love for the readers and listeners of this. This is not something where he's just deciding, I'm just going to throw some words out there. He's saying, this is of real importance to me and I want to relay it to you. It's almost as if how Paul would speak to Timothy. But then he also uses this word urge. I urge you. He wants to not coax you, but he wants to kind of say with these words, I want to convince you that this is important and, and he's really exhorting them to be someone that lives a godly life. He then reminds them about that we're not of this world, which we've already kind of looked at a little bit. It's interesting, at least to me, that Peter wrote 1 Peter to the exiles or as strangers, mainly believers. They were scattered out through Asia Minor. But it wasn't just those that were facing persecution then. I think he's also writing to those that would face persecution in the future. And in the second half of verse 11, we now see Peter kind of shift gears to what I call instructions for godly living. Peter understands that the power of sin is very strong and that we're in a constant battle with it. He says to abstain from sinful desires. What is Peter talking about specifically to there? Well, at the time of this writing, the world was out of control, especially sexually. But this goes for any of those things that basically we choose before God. For Gentiles, it would have been more prolific. Peter wants it to make it clear that you need to stay completely clear of these desires. He knows that if you hang around them long enough, it, it's eventually going to pull you in and take control. He also explains that this is more than just a flesh or a body issue, kind of a physical issue. It's also what's taking place in our soul or in our heart. Romans 6.23, many of you are familiar with this, says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. See, sin has a cost. It can seem so fun and innocent for a time, right? But it's going to cost you at some point. In Mark 8.36, it says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet yet forfeit their soul? When we want to please ourselves, it may seem great for a while while we're here, right? But the cost in the end could mean an eternity separated from God himself. Peter knows that the power of sin, can, he knows what the power of sin in a person's life can look like. It knows that we need to stand firm. We've got to be vigilant. And even at times, we've got to run like Joseph. See, our enemy, the devil, wants us to think that sin's no big deal. That everyone's doing it and, and so on. However, if you were to look at the resume of Satan, he's described in John 10 as a thief who comes to Great resume maker right here. Steal, kill, and destroy. But later, 1 Peter 5, just a couple chapters later, Peter says he is described as your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know about you, but steal, kill, destroy, devour. Not a good resume of a friend. See, Satan has really one purpose, to destroy your life and take as many people to hell with him. We need to understand that we're in a constant battle that that can only be won by allowing the Holy Spirit to control our lives. We can't beat Satan without God's help. This war will not end until Jesus returns, but it will end. And he will literally put Satan and those that don't believe in their place. Jesus understands this battle, though. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He lived a perfect life in the midst of a sinful, very sinful world. He knows what we're going through. Scripture tells us that every temptation to sin can be overcome. What a comfort that is. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, listen to these words, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. But we need to do that with his help. We can't do that on our own. We will not find the way out on our own. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, though. But it does say that God is with us in this battle and has given us his Holy Spirit to give us the power to resist and abstain. Yes, we can fail. But boy, I'm comforted by Scripture that tells us in 1 John 1, 9, confess your sin to God and he will forgive you of your sin. When we do that, we start with a a clean slate essentially each time and we no longer need to believe the lies of the evil one that tries to make us feel guilty, shameful, worthless. And the list goes on. We truly are um, in a right relationship with God because the sin has been dealt with through the perfect blood of Christ himself. It also helps us, I would say, helps us forgive others that have wronged us. In verse 12, Peter gives us some practical teaching about living our lives as believers. I wonder wonder sometimes if Peter and James talked about these things because it's interesting that a number of the same practical teachings are in the book of James. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans, which is unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see, and another translation says observe, which I, I like a little bit better, your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
So just, just a chapter later, in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So why is this so important to Peter? At that time, there was plenty of persecution going around, especially in the Roman Empire. Peter's telling the believers that we need to be people of integrity, of character, of charity. And we need to love our enemies just as Jesus did. The idea that Peter wants the believers and us to understand that, you know, we need to live exemplary lives. It makes accusations even amongst our enemies hard to stick to us if we do. Even those that are against the message will see a life that's different. As Chuck Swindoll said, he says, our lives must make those charges sound ridiculous to those who know us best. It's easy to serve someone we like, right? Somebody we know, somebody that carries the Christian ID card. But do our good deeds extend to those outside of Jesus? Peter wants disciples to be willing, just as the Good Samaritan stopped to help, to love and care for the needs around them, no matter who they are. This is why we chose to help build a habitat house in a neighborhood that we know has needs, but we don't know anybody there. This is a way for us to show others that our love is not conditional. We also, why do we prayer walk the Brainerd-Baxter area? It's again a way to say we love this community. We want to see God at work in it. This is why many of you serve on community boards, volunteer with nonprofits, and, and look for ways to meet the needs of those that have been marginalized in our society. It's not that we're, I don't think any of us are really looking to be featured in the newspaper or on a Facebook feed that, you know, uh, the idea I think is that God's people, um, that we want others to see what we're doing just from the standpoint of saying, we love people. We want them to observe our lives, even examine our lives, so that Christ can be lifted up. So when somebody wants to accuse Lakewood or one of our attendees about being anti, you name it, there are others around that will say, you know what, um, I've never saw that, and I have a hard time believing what you're saying. They might even come to your defense because they've seen the way you live your life. In the book Trust Edge by Dave Horsager, he shares this idea of a forest and how that connects to building trust with people around you. He says, A forest takes many years to deepen roots, grow branches, and flourish. And yet one poor decision with one little match can take it all down in a small fraction of time it took to mature. And then he continues, he says, Trust requires time, effort, diligence, and character. And there was a study by Manchester, Consul uh, Manchester Consulting Firm that did some research and they discovered this. It says it took only seven months for employees to build their trust in a leader, but less than half of that time to lose it. So what does that tell us? How we live our lives needs to be consistent. In every part of our lives, we need to consider every aspect of our lives, including the things we post on Facebook or share on Facebook or how we comment about those posts. There was a popular book out a while back called, Who Are You When Nobody's Looking? And the question is, are we really the same people when nobody's watching us? Or do we take shortcuts, work a little slower, a little sloppier, become less productive? Or does it really matter 
It doesn't matter who's watching us. We're going to still do the right thing all the time. I remember as a student uh, going to Red Lake Indian Reservation on a youth missions trip, and things were really very different up there, and communication was different, but they all spoke English. Um, I noticed that many of the adults just kind of watched us interact with their children, but even more, they watched how we interact, interacted with each other. The same is true when I would lead teams to New Orleans. People wanted to be sure that the person who is, who is theirs is truly who they say they are. Not someone that's a faker, a poser, a hypocrite. It takes time to build trust. So when our heart is in the right place, I believe most of the time that will help us lead our actions to do the right things. It will give us the ability to not judge the world, but to love the world like Jesus and live with authenticity. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. That's a pretty high ask, right? We can't be holy without Jesus. So that means we have to be dependent on him. See, when we rebel against the ways of society, people begin to notice and wonder why. However, I think that many times we as Christians... um, and I include myself in this, can come across as superior to the world and even maybe even send a, a message that seems kind of arrogant. We know best. We're better. When we truly love, though, the lost, our hearts need to really show that compassion and feel that compassion and live it out at all times. Remember, we're all sinners and we're saved by grace through faith. Warren Wiersbe, a pastor and theologian, just recently passed, and in his book called Be Hopeful, he wrote this story. He says, In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of a Christian message by Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the message, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, the chief said, Brother, We are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again of what you have said. Think about that for us, even as a church. That's kind of challenging. See, today in the U.S., most evangelical Christians are lumped into the category of probably the religious right. Uh, Most believe that we're in lockstep with the Republican Party. I'm going to be honest, there's not much we can do about that other than to do what Peter has called us to do. Live godly lives and do good deeds. Most of us don't have a platform like a professional athlete, an entertainer, or an elected official where we have a huge Twitter following. And we have access to media to share our beliefs wherever we'd like. But we do have access, I would say, to many people in our families, our neighborhoods, work, school. We can't influence everybody, but we can at least influence those that are around us. We have the good news of the gospel, and we need to live it out in our lives. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. The good deeds is not for you to get the glory, it's for God to get the glory. 
So what is the goal in living a godly life and doing these things? It says in Matthew 5 and in 1 Peter 2, it's to lead people to Jesus. Christians should look radically different than the world. And I use the word radically purposefully because radically means it it just doesn't look like anything else that's around it. And if we're living by the Holy Spirit's power, we should be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did you know that after the fruit of the Spirit are listed in Galatians 5, that it ends with this great truth that I think sometimes we we don't even get to because we just read through the fruit of the Spirit and we kind of end there. And it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, it means that when we live in the power of the Spirit, the evil passions and desires of the world will have a much harder time taking a hold in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit is helping us live a life that honors and glorifies God. Essentially, what it does is that it pushes out the evil and doesn't allow it to grab hold. In the first passage of the series, I highlighted, um, or the first message of the series, I highlighted two things about Jesus. And I come back to it is his humble servant heart and his deep love for people, especially those that were hurting and, and really on the margins of society. If I was to only cover, you know, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, I, I wouldn't be doing my job and giving you the whole picture. I want to take a moment and think about Jesus. I want you to take a moment and think about this. Earthly Jesus and what he showed us. Now, t- so just kind of think about what did he show us? What did we learn from him while he was here on earth? Then I want you to look at it from a different perspective. I want you to kind of look at this and say, okay, Let's consider Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, creator, sustainer of all things. Jesus could have, I could say, come to earth as a king, right? A ruler and even force people to submit to him. But that is not what he did. He left heaven and became a servant to all. In all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as all the New Testament books of the Bible, we see the writers regularly refer and highlight Jesus' humility and his perfection. We as followers, we as believers, are to follow Jesus' example and live as he lived his life. We can't do it perfectly, but we can do it in his power. If Jesus was a humble servant and submitted to the authorities of of his time, then we must do the same. In verses 13 through 17, he shifts gears and just shows us what does this look like. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. There's this idea of freedom in here, truly living in freedom. And last week, I talked about this idea of perfect peace. There's something that God is offering us that the world can't get its hands on unless they come through him. It's important to understand that when man's law, though, is in conflict with God's laws, we must always choose God's law. So yes, there are times for civil disobedience. But even how we do that must be done with love at its core and with grace in view. In verse 15, it says, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. 
We see Peter repeating that, and he just, you know, he said it just three verses before. But just so you know, anytime we read something and it's so closely, uh, something similar, it means it's really important. Pay attention. But then he gets to this in verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's servants. Some translations even use the word slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear or this idea of revere or show reverence toward God and honor the emperor. See, we live in a country that affords us many freedoms and even rights to protect those freedoms. Peter in this section contrasts the life that is entangled in sin and puts a person in bondage. It's, it's not only physical, but it's also eternal. And he shares this truth that we are free in Jesus Christ. Most people don't want to be a slave. We no longer are controlled by our, our sin nature because we're free in Christ. We don't have to live with the guilt, shame, and hopelessness of the world because we're free in Christ. But we can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded of that. And like I said in that 1 Peter 2.9, just before this whole section, it says, we are God's special possession. Our identity is found in him and him alone. It's not found in this world or in others. Something that I often use to remind myself of my purpose in my own life, something is this, love God, love others, and when I say others, I mean believers, and love the lost. And I think in verse 17, Peter is kind of telling us to do just that. He says, fear God or love God. Love the family of believers, he says, and which is love others. And then lastly, he says, honor the emperor and show proper respect to everyone. And I think that can really include both the love others and loving the lost. I know it can be hard to love others and, and love lost people. But when we do that, I think people will notice. And it will most likely, I think, open doors to sharing the loving message of the gospel. Finally, in verses 18 and 19, Peter shares another example of being a servant. He even uses the word slave here. I've used the, the message Bible, so it's going to use servant. It says, you who are servants or slaves, be good servants or slaves to your masters. Not just the good ones, but also the bad ones. What counts is, and listen to this, that you put up with it for God's sake when you're treated badly for no good reason. So even if our good deeds seem to go nowhere and we're, not, and we're being mistreated, remember that we continue to serve as if we are serving Jesus Christ himself. And in conclusion, verses 20 through 24, Peter's using these words and he brings everything kind of back to Jesus. And he says, when we, you know, and, and it said, when we think of these things are too hard and people are too unfair, James, uh, Peter says this, and he, in a sense he plays what I would call the Jesus card. Because at, at once that's played, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, okay, there it is, I got to do it. And it says this, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Did you hear that? To this you were called, 
because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. We are to follow his ways, that you should follow in his steps. We're on the journey. We're on the road, and he is with us. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, his Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. So when we leave today, I want you to ask these two questions. One I I gave you last week, which was, Jesus, what do you want me to do with what I've just heard? If we leave this and we just say, hey, that was a great message. Thank you, you know, Pastor Dave, I appreciate that. And we do nothing with it, we've really, it's been a waste of time. We need to look at what are you saying to me in this, Jesus? And it's going to be different for each person out here. But another thing to consider is what areas of your life are you doing well to show Christ? Evaluate that. What are some of the things you're seeing God uh, use you for? And what are some areas that you think, hmm, I probably need to be a little more intentional or even a little more vigilant in this area? That may mean you need to look through your social media and remove things from your past. Take some time, I encourage you, to please pray and ask God where you may need to really take a closer look. We need to live exemplary lives and we can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. So remember, this is not our home. We are aliens, we are strangers, we are sojourners, we are exiles. But we have an eternal home in heaven with God. But God has called us to live holy lives while we are here. And he's called us to live those holy lives in the power of his Holy Spirit while we're here. And because of that, we can share his message of hope with the world, with the way in which we live our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for, again, this opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for these words that you inspired Peter with to encourage us to live godly lives, to live lives that influence others because um, they see us, but more importantly, they see you through us. And so, Lord, as we uh, leave this morning, I just pray that you would help us to understand more fully that how we live our lives matters, and it matters to you. And so I pray that we would truly rely on your Holy Spirit to give us the power to have an impact in this world. Pray this in your name.